Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this edition of Freeman Means Business Wonder Women in Business podcast. Everyone has a story, and on our podcast, we give a voice to those women whose story is meaningful, moving, and compelling. We share their stories with the world so that in their shining, they give permission to others to shine as well. So everybody, I am super duper excited today to have an old friend, I shouldn't say an old friend, a friend of old, uh, days gone by, Rana Gray of Rana Gray Communications on my show today. She is fantastic. She's not only brilliant, she's also um, funny. So this should be a great podcast. Uh, Rana, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Susan. I don't mind us being called old friends. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, tell us a little bit. Now, I know you and adore you, and I've followed your work, and you are amazing. Um, oh, thank you. You make it look like there's no such thing as a glass ceiling. It's all in our heads. And we know that's not true, but you make it look easy. So tell us <laughs> a little bit about yourself. Well, I um, went to LSU in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I got a master's degree in journalism with a sort of a concentration in public relations. And then I worked in state government for a number of years. And then I had uh, an opportunity to go start a college marketing program at LSU in the early days when that was really corporate sponsorship involvement was really uh, becoming a thing. And so I worked for 13 years as associate athletic director doing marketing, advertising, radio and television production. And for 20 wow. sports teams there. Wow. And uh, so I tell everyone, if you're from Louisiana, my career has gone through our two favorite pastimes, sports and politics. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. Talk about, I don't even know if they're pastimes anymore. I think they're like the, the blood that runs through the state is sports and politics. Um, That's you know, true. I did not know that about you uh, until I was going over your bio. I knew about the heavy political involvement, but I did not realize about your work at LSU in the athletic department. I think that's fantastic. That's so it much fun. It was a fun. lot of fun. It was really different and fun, but I tell everyone it wasn't really that different from politics because it was like we had an election every Saturday night. And depending on what happens, the, the coach might lose his job. So, that's so funny. That's the power of football in, yeah. in the South, really, not just Louisiana. Totally. I mean, All of SEC is pretty, um, you know, politics and football, blood sports down there. So. Right. And then I did that for a long time and uh, decided to go out on my own, start a small public relations consultancy. And um, I've been doing that for a number of years. Lots of fun. I work on some public projects. And I still get to do politics in that I go and volunteer to do tax elections uh, for projects that I really, uh, and programs I really care about, such as our public library system. I've helped them twice pass the tax that supports our public libraries. And I helped our local fire department pass a tax. It's the first time we'd ever passed a tax in perpetuity it doesn't expire and wow. I said, if, we, if we don't do it for the firefighters who are we going to do it for so exactly exactly so I volunteered to help with that and that was keeps me involved in the politics side of it a little bit and and now i i work for a number of clients and i work on a lot of public projects where we go and try to get um the community engaged and give input on how we want our community to grow. Well, those are all great causes. So I, I think that 
my listenership knows that I am all about, you know, the same kinds of causes that you just mentioned, libraries, firefighters, do good for the community, a safe, clean place to live, um, you know, where to work and play, you know, we want to be there. That's, that's the kind of community that I'd like to live in and, and you know, uh, work in as well. So I think you fight for the same kinds of causes as I. I love that you're so passionately involved as much on a volunteer basis as you would be on a paid project. And folks, I know that for sure. I've seen I do a lot of reading in my current reading, my current volunteering, my, and uh, my current one is involves reading. And I volunteer at the, in the local public schools as a reading friend for first graders. And so this is my fourth year being assigned the little first grade boy. Uh, I've stuck with boys because I bought so many books about snakes and lizards and <laughs> superheroes that I just seem to get assigned boys because I've got a really nice library now to read with them. Well, that's so, funny that you say that because um, my stepdaughter, Madeline, works with reptiles and insects at the California Academy of Sciences. So I am not into that stuff, but I'll tell you, there's a girl or two out there who would like that uh, lizard reptile stuff. Don't call there me. Are, you're right. There are a lot of girls. I've got some great nieces that are very interested in that. So I, I've loaned them the books, too. You're right. It's not just for boys. Well, tell me a little bit. You've done so much, and, and my readers know that I'll create a blog and put your bio in there, but you've done so much. Let's talk about what of all you've done that makes you proudest. I think something not completely related, but it was related to my profession that I'm proudest of is I uh, have a book that was published a few years back. That it's a true crime book, and it's actually something that I got involved with because of work. Um, and the book's gone on to win some awards, which made me really, really proud, not just of me, but of our story getting recognized. And it became um, the subject of the premiere episode of a network television program. It just aired last month and is still streaming and, and replaying uh, on television on the Investigation Discovery Network. Wow. This was all completely unexpected, but it was also very much in line with studying journalism in college. And I've actually gone back and spoken at uh, journalism classes because the dean said to me, I bet you use some of the skills you learned in journalism school because I actually got involved. I didn't just write the book. I got involved and became a confidential informant in an international criminal investigation for almost wow. a year. Almost so, a year. Wait a minute. <laughs> okay, so there's something no podcast guest has ever been able to say on my show. <laughs> That's incredible. So look, for the folks out there who don't know, LSU has one of the finest schools of journalism, the Man's Manship School of Journalism. Manship, right. Yeah, finest in the world. And so she was trained, Rana was trained uh, in investigative journalism, which is a dying art and science both. Um, so I think the fact that your skills were put into play there is fascinating. So I'm going to be quiet and let you tell us more about that story because I didn't know all that. This is great. Oh, Susan, it's exactly what we learned in journalism school. You know, to briefly tell your listeners here, um, I was involved in a public project, actually, for our local office of Homeland Security, 
and there was a video production company working with us on that project and they were all from England and the owner of the company had become a popular um, television host of a community affairs program and he had volunteered to MC at just countless of charity activities in the community and he had chummed up with literally every law enforcement agency he could get involved with every anyone doing good work um, from um, uh, any anyone children's uh, charities anyone he could attach himself to and I think people just thought he was harmless and um, I was one day he um, he did an interview with the local newspaper and he criticized our project, our client, me, all because she had kind of had a meeting with us and called him out on some things he was doing. And he was so enraged at being questioned about something that he was retaliating against her. And it ended up in a big story in the newspaper. And when I saw all the inaccuracies in it, I tell the journalism folks, I did what journalism majors do. I wrote a letter to the editor. Yeah. So you think, you know, you think that's got a lot of power, but it was just a letter to the editor and where his story ran on page one, my little letter to the editor was about page four or five and not seen by nearly as many people. But two years after it was published, I got an email from someone in England. He had found it online. He'd been searching yeah. for this man for 13 years. And the reason was the man here, his name was Scott Rogers, who was the television host and the community uh, activist. Oh my gosh, he I remember was, him. He was a very dangerous child predator. <gasps> and he had operated a school, a performing arts academy in England, very popular yeah. over there. As you know, they are attached to, to their school's programs. They go after school and on Saturdays and they they aspire to audition for television commercials or, or West End productions. And he ran this where they taught acting and oh public speaking God. and dance and voice and anything performing arts. And he'd operated the school for about 10 years and he, uh, authorities estimate he had sexually abused maybe hundreds of kids. Oh my God. I didn't know. I have chills. Oh my I God. So this is a very, very sad. I knew so this he, person. I know who you're talking about. I've yeah, met with him. Um, a lot of people had, and he came here. He, well, he, he was finally charged. One young boy charged, uh, pressed charges against him for assault. And they had, they moved the trial to London. It lasted two weeks, lots of publicity, all those tabloids over oh there on Fleet Street covered it. And then it ended up with a hung jury. And the hung jury was because um, he brought in so many um, character witnesses, character, 17 character witnesses. I was looking for the number, 17 character witnesses he brought in and they were ministers and public officials and oh my um, goodness. parents, other parents of kids at the academy. So it was a hung jury. They just didn't know who was telling the truth. But enough got out that his school was going to fail. Parents started pulling them out, kids yeah. out. 
and he fled and came to the United States, changed his name a little bit, and reinvented himself as this television host here. So well, he had such um, a dynamic personality. And Rana, didn't he bring his um, family or his? He brought a daughter. Yeah. And he brought some former students who had been sexually abused by him since the age of 12. Oh my gosh. And were completely brainwashed. Stockholm completely, syndrome. Yes, completely brainwashed and wouldn't leave him under any circumstances until all this. So I get this email from this man, I don't know, it's obviously a little scary. And he tells me that he knew him, he's sexually abused children, he got away with it in the trial, but I know there were more victims. It breaks my heart because I come to realize that he probably was a victim too, and that's what ended up being the case. And, um, you know, I didn't know, Susan, what to do with this story. Right. comes to me, and I'm like, I'm going to find someone who can help you. And I set about trying to connect him with the appropriate law enforcement. But because Scott Rogers had befriended so many people in law enforcement, I was afraid who to take it to. Were, so you, a, were you the victim of any backlash because of his strong relationships with the community? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> in fact, funny you should ask. Yes, because, you know, no one believed this. Everyone, he, he, he didn't, first of all, he didn't know I had been approached. But when he did the story, the negative story, he went to some of his law enforcement connections and were act he was actually able to get one of them to get the FBI to come investigate us about this project. Oh my God. Myself and the, uh, our client at Homeland Security and, you know, FBI actually was like, what are we doing here? Right. You know, we don't even, we don't, what, what's supposedly wrong with this project? We don't see anything. You know, they had no idea, really, that they were um, being used by They him. were pawns. They yeah. were pawns being manipulated. So I finally was able to connect the man from England with uh, law enforcement and, and a federal uh, U.S. attorney, assistant U.S. attorney in, in Lafayette, which, as you know, is 60 miles or so away from here. So we, we were able to get it out of, of the Baton Rouge community where he had so many connections, and we were able to take it to someone who had about 25 years experience in child endangerment cases. He was perfect. His name was Luke Walker, and he'd been recently honored by the U.S. Justice Department for some cases he'd handled. So he was the perfect person to take it to. And he connected us with the, this is another interesting part of the story, a U.S. Postal Inspection Agent who works really closely with the U.S. Attorney's offices on cases that involve mail or the internet, and usually in a case like this, child pornography may be involved, so the internet may be involved. You don't think of the postal inspection agents, but they're our nation's first law enforcement agency, and they That's do true. so much really good, quiet work. And what I'm, I'm going to come back to this, but what I really like sharing with your audience about this is that. This, man, this young man brought the story to me. I got a paralegal named Mary Jane Markintel involved who, who connected us with uh, the assistant U.S. attorney and helped me do research and all to take this. And then 
the federal postal inspection agent was a young single mother. So there's like three women who really were involved in this case for about nine or 10 months after I brought it to there. And um, the guys over in England that I met, some of the students from the academy who had been really seriously abused and not just sexual abuse, but beaten into oh unconsciousness and broken bones and things like that uh, have all said that they were able to go through this investigation because it was a lot easier to talk to the women. It, they, I mean, they told me things they'd never told anybody in their lives. And yeah. um, when I had to bring in an agent for them to talk to, they said, you know, they had talk, only talked to older men. It was very difficult for them. And she was almost a peer. She was young in her mid thirties. And so there is a lot to be said about the way we as women communicate, but yeah. to just wrap up the story so we can talk about other things. Um, once I connected him, we became, uh, we both, he and I both, the guy who contacted me and I became confidential informants to the federal government. We connected with federal agents, we don't call them federal agents, but with the police in the UK. And uh, we had to stay very, very quiet and work with them. And my role was to bring in other victims from the UK willing to speak up here in the United States. Oh um, my gosh, what a difficult task. Yeah. Yes, and as you know, this story, unfortunately, has an explosive ending with two people ending up dead and a murder-suicide carried out and has a very, I won't tell anyone everything in case they want to read my book, but uh, I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but it, it's a very uh, difficult and emotional story, and when it was all over with, I was asked to write this book to, when they learned that I had been involved for a year and wrote it and have been uh, the young man who contacted me, participated, Mary Jane Markintelle, um, collaborated on it. And I really made a decision that it's a sensational story. It's so many twists. Right. And it's hard to believe, but I made a decision that we would only do this. And he and I, we call him Ethan in the book. It's not his real name, but he and I made the decision that it had to be for educating the public. That's why right. we wanted to tell this. He told me, I called him and I said, I've been asked to do this. I wouldn't do it without you. What do you think about this? And he said, I think we should do it for a couple of reasons. Number one, law enforcement was fooled by this man. Right. So let's educate them some. And communities were fooled. As I tell people when I speak about this book, um, child predators operate this way. First, they seduce a community, and then they're going to seduce gatekeepers, you know, parents, sure. t uh, teachers, law enforcement, and then they're going to seduce children and abuse children. And they seduce the community first so that if anyone ever points a finger at them for something not appearing to be right, the community will rise up and defend them sure. because they're charismatic and they're the children's favorite. And they go and have promised they'll do great things for the kids. So people actually rise up and defend them very emotionally. Yeah. It's an amazing phenomenon to watch. But um, it's exactly, I, 
Janice's groupthink. If you've studied groupthink in comms theory, that's exactly what it is. Like um, they create a safe space and then they walk through that path. They create a, uh, another safe space. It's like conical, you know, they get down to where they can finally reach the, the prey. Yes. And they're safe to do as they wish in their minds. Yes, that's right. So to answer your question now, <laughs> I think writing the book and being involved in that case called on all my training and education in journalism and working in communications to do that, even though it's kind of a sidebar to my career. I really do. I've told people it's life changing for me. Uh, it was definitely life-changing for the young men that I helped. Uh, they're healthier and happier now and uh, able to move on with their lives. They always felt this was something they were afraid of him. They were afraid. They're young fathers now with you know, small children. Yeah. They were afraid he, if they ever spoke against him, they thought he'd have their children kidnapped from school. I mean, they were terrified of him because of all those years of mind games. So, Talk about the sociopath next door, huh? Yes, it really is the thing that I've been proudest okay. of to have gone through and and um, been able to help a little bit. Well, Rana, I think it's beautiful that you were able to give these people a voice. I want to ask you, however, um, were, did you find that you needed someone to talk to? Because this is probably hard for you to have done this investigative work and in writing this book. I mean... You it's, know, you know taking it, it's, care of Rana? it's an interesting question you ask because I get that a lot because I speak to a lot of conferences of social workers and social workers are so kind and nurturing and caring and they always ask me that question. Um, there's a couple of things. We all talk to each other every day. So the first person I actually went to was a, an attorney friend of mine here, Nathan Fisher, who has since passed away. And Nathan was kind of my North Star in telling me how to legally handle this. And he was very protective of me, making sure I, I, my name was, we thought this was going to go to court. And it obviously did not end up going to court, but we, he was very protective of me from the beginning. And then Mary Jane came into it. I knew her. She's a local well-known paralegal, done 30 plus years of work in this, in this state. But I didn't know her like I do now because then she and I would talk every day. And then every day I was having a conversation with the young man. We were in England. We were so focused on that that there really wasn't the time to worry about our own well-being. When it was over, I happened to be about a week after the case ended, uh, tragically in, in some ways. Um, I was listening to a radio and a social worker called in. Uh, Leslie Todd and spoke about this case and I liked so much what she said I had uh, I, I called her I put, wrote her name down and then when I got asked to write the book I went to see her and met her and spent three hours the first day talking to her and said I want you to write a chapter in the book for me because I'm not qualified to explain this sort of behavior and I heard you explain it so well some of the things you and I just talked about and so she's a wonderful friend now. And I talk to her all the time. She speaks a lot with me um, from the perspective of a clinical social worker. And she always says that because now I speak 
everywhere. And Susan, almost everywhere I speak, I now can recognize the person who lingers in the back of the room. Yeah. The wait so people clear out and comes and tells me. I get emails all the time. I got an email yesterday from England from someone who, it was a girl at that academy. She wasn't sexually abused, but the psychological abuse on all of them was tremendous. So I am mindful of what you say that, you know, you can't absorb all of this and not um, have some impact on you. Right. So Leslie has, Todd has kind of become, she's such a wonderful social worker and deals with a lot of these issues. So she's been someone I talk to a lot, but I, I would suggest that to anyone that works in that, in a high pressure situation with that sort of level of tension that Absolutely. you do need someone, you do need someone to talk to. Yeah, it will destroy your psyche and your heart and you will need, you know, you need to let that stuff out. And even so, so you're in communications. I'm in a different kind of communications. I do a lot of communications theory um, but we both know that you have to have someone to talk to, to let that out, to, um, you know, to confirm your feelings, to hold your hand, so to speak, and to, you know, just, this is why we don't always need somebody to fix it. You know, we just need somebody to listen, you know, to let us That's get right. this, this out. So, um, that is so powerful. And that was the first thing I thought of was who is looking after Rana when Rana's protecting all oh. information. Yeah. Well, um, gosh, you know, I have to tell you, I haven't bought the book, but as soon as we are done with this podcast, that's <laughs> your bottom dollar. I'll be ordering that book. Is it available on Amazon? Yes, it is. It's available on Amazon and all it's right. available on all the ebook formats for people that read ebooks and yeah. Um, uh, I am so, I have chills. I mean, the whole time you were talking, because I knew this person, I'd been to his office, I'd sat in his office with him, just the two of us chatting about, you know, how we could work together. And it didn't pan out for a number of reasons. One, I left to go live in Hawaii, but still, it was just, I can't believe that you, and I'm pretty yes. intuitive, Rana. I'm, you know, women did in you, general. Did are. you pick up on anything? I thought he was a little, yeah, I mean, it's easy for us to say now, right? right. But, um, I did tell a mutual friend of ours, and I won't mention her name here, but that I found him to be disingenuous. So oh, well, that's what I said, Susan. And I, should, I should mention the name of the book is Familiar Evil. And that, wow. actually came, that actually came from a conversation. I interviewed a social worker who had been on his last television show. And um, I talked to her about how he got all these people to stay around him who had been abused at such an early age. You understand it up until they're about 36, 37 years old, and you're starting to wonder uh, why they don't sort of get a handle on it. And she, the first thing she said was familiar evil. Yes. I remember scribbling that down, and she said, he's convinced them that the evil you know is it's better, better yeah. than the evil you don't know that's out there. It's like um, an abused pet that still loves its owner. I mean, it's, it's what you know. It's very similar to abused spouses. Right. Uh, yes, it's, it's very, very similar to oh, that. Oh, I'm so and upset. So... <laughs> I'm not, you know, this is just chilling. Um, and I also thought when you say you thought he was disingenuous, I yeah. tell people the same thing. To me, I didn't know him. I was only ever in one meeting with him. I never 
when she called us in on the project and asked about some concerns she had and she wasn't accusing her or anything she just questioned him on things and he was just you know he got real emotional he kind of yeah. started to cry and I thought this is bizarre I always thought he was just a fake yes. you know I, I yes. have a a bad feeling about people not being uh, being phony, and and you're yeah. right. That's I never would have expected this background, but yeah. he was to me uh, not authentic. And that exactly when I way, sat with him, we were right. I felt like uh, he was a tryhard. Okay, so that's a phrase my teenage son uses: a tryhard. I <laughs> felt like um, that that he was covering up, like you know, just he didn't have much depth i felt That's like right. so that was my initial impression and it lasted and he proved me to be right and he didn't follow up on our agreements and so that's okay you know better that it turned out that i didn't do business with this person um that's right but wow wow i just you know i i need like a drink <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, well, wait till you read the book. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you can have a big glass of wine every time you read. <laughs> it's only 1030 in the morning here. And I'm like, oh my God, I need a drink. Um, oh, no. Well, this is incredible. What a, what a major accomplishment. I know that it's, you know, you're torn between saying, yay, I did this great thing. It's a wonderful professional accomplishment, but being careful about the fact that it's helping other people not get uh, falling into those traps and you're telling the story you're giving voice to these victims of this really disturbed and terrible person and I don't want to spoil the end either I don't know all the details of it but I do know the end and so I'm going to encourage everyone uh, to buy this book read this <laughs> book it's going to be troublesome I'm sure if you're like I am a, a deep feeler you're going well, to cry well I'm going to tell you though um I was very careful in when I first talked to Ethan, as the young man we call, I told him, the first thing I'm going to tell you is we're not going to talk about abuse. You know, once you know someone's abused, you don't need to know anything more about that. So I tell people all the time, this is a story of amazing perseverance by this young man. Yeah. Who searched the world for him for 13 years. Wow. Who, who got married, had children, but in the back of his mind, very successful businessman, but in the back of his mind kept saying, I've got to make this right for me. And so it's really an inspirational story. And Rana, did people know that Ethan was looking for this person? No, no one knew. No yeah. one knew. His, his wife didn't know. He, wow. He, he would you know, on the computer, he'd take a 15 minute break and search and, and look for him. And he didn't even know what country he was in because this guy moved all over the, the world. Yeah. Yeah. And um, no, no one knew. Yeah. So wow. I, you know, I tell people, don't think you're going to read a book about sexual abuse. You know, you're right. going to read a, 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 just a story of amazing perseverance. And um, so he's the main character. Um, <laughs> Ethan or is the main character Scott? The main character is Ethan. 
Okay. And the story is about the year-long investigation. From the day I got the gotcha. email until the explosive finale was exactly 365 days. Wow. I cannot so That's another thing I told the publisher when they approached me about it. I'm not writing the Scott Rogers story. Right. I have no interest in that. We and, don't want to glorify him. And I would not ever write that. But he is the main character, and it's his story, and then it's his story with me, and I was just really honored to be able to tell it. Well, I cannot wait to meet Ethan through your <laughs> words, through your story, through your book. So thank you. Um, you'll you'll love him, and you'll you'll hold him up as a hero. Well, you send him um, my love from way over here. Um, I will, and I actually text with him this morning. We were um, talking about someone from England contacting me yesterday on, on Twitter, and so I shared that with him because she went to the academy and, and was sending those boys her best and oh boy. wishing that they live the happy lives they deserve, and I was sharing that with him. So we do we stay in close touch, and I'm a big fan of his. That's awesome. Well, you're such a good person. And this oh. I knew that before, but um, I didn't know I could love you more. I do. Oh, thanks. Um, well, let me ask you, um, that has probably been quite a challenge in your life with a, a you know, a positive and meaningful outcome. But what has a, a, another, what has been another challenge or, or maybe even a setback and how did you overcome it? Because you strike me as a very strong woman. Well, you know, that's definitely the biggest setback because the other side of this was, you know, I was crushed that the newspaper bought into his story. Yeah. And um, printed it on printed false statements on the front page of the Sunday paper, you know, at a time when I, I was really starting my consulting business, was just a few years old and was really getting my feet under me. And you know, you immediately they think apologize? you um, no, you immediately oh, think people will, um, you know, believe what's in the newspaper. You know, you you, you especially if you're a journalism major. So um, that was that was hard on me. That was a very hard time. And uh, there's always setbacks in your life. And it's, is it it's, the paper that I know? Yes, it's the the advocate oh, my main God. newspaper in our hometown and I when I wrote my letter to the editor when you read the book I even had a struggle to get them to publish my letter to the editor uh they wanted so, to they actually edited it for me if you all can that, that you have done for journalism as a as a discipline and I mean I'm thinking wow there needs to be a building at Louisiana State University <laughs> named after Ronna Gray and not posthumously either uh, yeah uh, it's incredible no, you, work yeah I, I it's you know i guess um i could certainly think of other uh setbacks no one's life is uh a bed of roses but i don't think anything's ever disappointed me professionally as much as that because as a young journalism student i did an internship at that newspaper yeah that's what i, I was thinking i held it up as you know one of my favorite newspapers sure. what a and slap just, in the face yeah i was just really shocked by it and for you know a, a year almost two years for a year it had an effect on my business and then sure um, 
I had to rebuild. And then, of course, when the story came out, it had the opposite effect because, you know, of course, everyone then knew what all I had gone through. But um, that was very challenging, difficult time. I have to tell you, um, the onus is on them for printing, you know, misinformation and not being, and it, it's also on them for not correcting, course correcting, but it's also on the viewers and the readers for not checking the facts. And we get a lot of that these days, as you know. Right. Um, so, you know, shame on us for believing everything we read and then you know, shame on them for ruining their good history, their good reputation, their good um, uh, legacy of being a trustworthy source for news information, fact-based right. information, investigative journalism. Um, that's just lazy. And when they don't yeah, course I correct. Want, I want to put the burden on them because I actually, being a journalism major, I actually want to believe what's yeah. in the newspaper. So I want well, to put the burden on them. I'll, I'll agree us. with you there. They, <laughs> they should have printed a correction. They should have printed yeah. an apology. And I'll tell you, um, it really hurts their reputation because they have a long history of being, you know, providing fine investigative journalism. And that is not what that was. And so I'm sorry they did that to themselves and I'm sorry they did that to you. And it makes me sad to think I used to pay to read that. Paper. <laughs> well, uh, I still I want my do. Money back. I still do. <laughs> I still do. Like I said, I still got to believe in our uh, free press out there. So I do believe in free press. I'm a member of freepress.org uh, and then uh, Freedom House. And mm -hmm. uh, I use PolitiFact and factcheck.org and all those good things. So um, it's just much harder to find the truth these days than it used to be. You used to just be able to trust your eyes on the ground, your community newspaper. And now with the media consolidation, you never know what you're going to get as it spins off the uh, wire services. But that's my soapbox. You know that for me. <laughs> this podcast is not about me and all that. So let's get back to you. Um, tell us something we don't know. Give us a surprising fact that people who even know you may not know about you. <laughs> well, you know, this didn't seem to be anything to even talk about until one day I said something to, um, we were talking about years we graduated from high school. And I paused a minute, you know, that's a date that you typically remember. And I paused a minute to get it right. And I kind of hesitated and people looked at me like I was crazy. And I said, well, I skipped the 11th grade in high school. So, wow. you know, you go your whole life going to be the class of whatever. And then right. I ended up finishing a year earlier. So it, it does get mixed up in my mind. So it became a big conversation with my friends because um, I grew up in Mississippi and then moved to Louisiana, but um, I, I did because I skipped the 11th grade and came to LSU at 16. Wow. And started my, and started my college because I have an uh, August birthday, and so I came down here and started college at 16. Well, first of all, I, 16 at LSU, that's a challenge right there. And then August birthday, what's your birthday? August 1st. I'm August 7th. So I knew mm -hmm. we were Leo ladies. That's, that's right. Awesome. That's right. I love it. I love it. And I came in the spring and took advanced placement testing and um, was fortunate to get about 13 hours of credit. So I actually started as a second semester freshman. 
And you know, look, when I look back, no, not a genius, but I look back on it and I think, oh my gosh, I was at a, a Catholic girls' school in Mississippi. We had 35 students in our graduating class. And I come to a school with, I, I drove on roads in the country with no line down the middle of them. And then I come to a city at 16 with, uh, I've only had my driver's license a year and 30,000 students. So, yeah. uh, you know, I spent the first semester just learning where my classes were <laughs> <laughs> to make it around the, the campus and make it around the city, of course. So that's become when I'm somewhere and people ask me to tell them something that will surprise them, I go, I guess, I love that. I guess this is a story. It was, uh, I love another, that story. You're I, also, I always took it for granted until I shared it. And then I thought, yeah, I guess that's a fun thing to do. Well, not only is it a good story, so the content is great, but uh, you're a good storyteller, as we, as many of us who know you know, but those who don't know you, she's a great storyteller, which probably now you know if you're listening. Oh, thank but, you. Yeah, um, that's pretty interesting. Uh, LSU is such a huge university. I, I even had trouble navigating, and I grew up on the campus. You know, I would go to class with my mom when she went back as a, a an older uh, student to get her uh, second degree. And I would, you know, go take Spanish classes there in the summers and oh, I would go to camp, tiger camp or whatever it was. And um, so I was very familiar, but still, even so when you, and I went to the school of journalism as well, but you still are looking for your posse, you know, right at 16 and everybody else being 18. Um, that's probably a little bit of a challenge. So Good for you for being so brilliant and being able to get into college so early and good for you for navigating. Well, I was just, I was anxious to get there. That's the main reason. I was just anxious to get there. I knew one to go to LSU and I was just anxious to get there. So it, it worked out. Such a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> I love nerds. You know a that. Book, a book nerd. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let me ask you this. If people want to reach you, how can they reach you? They can reach me at my website, which is ronagray.com. And it is an unusual name. It's R-A-N-N-A-H-G-R-A-Y.com. And you can contact me through the website and learn more about the book there. And I've written a second book and they can read about that there too. Oh, well, uh, before we say our goodbyes, I think you should mention your second book because it's adorable. Oh, thanks. It's a, uh, um, well, and it came about really because of the first one. Uh, like you, Susan, I've written things my whole life, but never really thought about writing a book. And as people would ask me about Familiar Evil, um, I've got two at the time, they were six-year-old identical twin great nieces. And they would say, what are they talking about? Well, I didn't really want to get into the subject matter. Right. So I turned, and they were starting school. So I turned them into, uh, let's make up our own story. And you probably, like me, read Nancy Drew mystery. Yes. And I love Nancy Drew. And, I, and, the, and the, what were the, the Hardy Boys? The Hardy Boys. And I was yeah. going to say, for, for the subject of gender communications, I will add, I always tell audiences when I'm speaking about the books, the girls read Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys. Yeah. But the boys only read the Hardy Boys. So they that missed out. So they true. missed out on that. But I read all my brother's Hardy Boy mysteries too. So sort of as an homage to Nancy Drew, we wrote a mystery called Case of the Missing Poodle. 
It's set in New. It's set in New Orleans where they live, and for either residents or visitors, or if you've never been to New Orleans, it takes you around to all our favorite places in New Orleans. And I'm actually going to be in two weeks at a children's book festival in Michigan because it's being honored with a Moonbeam Award. Nice. And, uh, which is a big festival and award ceremony they have up there. And um, I'm going to go up there and accept it on our behalf. And we're going to, they speak with me. They're nine now. And they speak with me at, they're going to speak with me at the Louisiana Book Festival, which will oh be the, my God, the biggest. Oh my God, great. <laughs> but we speak at libraries and we spoke, this was my favorite thing about it. And I'll stop talking about this book. <laughs> we spoke at a Rotary Club. You'll know where in uh, Port Allen, Louisiana. Yeah. And the Rotary Club did a program where they asked all the Rotarians to bring their child or grandchild. It was during the summer. And the How twins sweet. spoke with me. And we had this audience. And then the kids asked the questions. And the twins answered them. And all of us. I adults, love it. I did too. And I thought. Every Rotary Club should have a program somewhere where it's bring your kids to Rotary because, you know, Rotary audiences are aging populations in a lot of places. Yeah. And it was so much fun and taught them um, about, you know, civic participation. So I thought it was a great thing. So that is when you say, who do I talk to after Familiar Evil? I quickly go and get involved in writing a happy story with uh, my twin great nieces. And that's all the good mental health vibes that you need. That's awesome. That and a deep tissue massage. That's awesome. <laughs> and a big glass of wine. Well, yeah, that's a given. <laughs> Anybody who listens to my podcast knows that I'm a big fan of wine. And uh, right. you'll have to claw me away from Napa Valley. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so uh, this has been so interesting. I want to oh, say so much great. Fun but, talking um, to you. Yeah, all my emotions. You know, I had, I've run the gamut during this entire conversation. So, Thank you for being such a deep, wonderful, beautiful, uh, hardworking, unafraid woman who serves as a great, great role model to men and women alike. And just, I'm so glad that you were able to carve out time of your busy schedule to be here. Um, I'm going to write the blog today and share the um, podcast today. I usually take about 48 hours, but I was prepared for this. I did. I worked on the blog last night, so I'll be able to have this out ready for everyone to listen to and to view today. Oh, great. Well, Susan, it's been so much fun talking to you. You too. You too. I'll tell Mike you said hello, and thank you for being here. Thank you for listening, everyone. Have a great day.